verses 5 to 11. I'll be reading from the NIV version. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where, we, where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence on the wor- of the works themselves. This is God's word. Thanks, Allie, for reading for us. Um, Just uh, so you're aware, a couple of things. Um, First of all, if you want to follow along uh, kind of as as an outline to help orient yourself where we are in the message, there is a a sermon outline on the very back of the bulletin that might be helpful for some of you. Also, uh, so you are aware, it is our custom whenever possible to have a short Q&A time after the message, just for clarifying questions and some interaction. And if you uh, want to ask questions, you know, if you got a pen, just write them down as the message is kind of unfolding, and uh, you can ask them at the end, or you can text me if you're more inclined to do that, rather than raise your hand and have everybody look at you if you don't like that. Uh, you can text me, 905-517-0936. That number is in the bulletin, and, and we'll, uh, we'll try to get to, um, try to, get to uh, your questions at the end of the, the message. We've, had, uh, we've been going through a series together over the last little while on issues, troubles that people have with Christianity. And uh, these are troubles not just that non-Christians have, although they certainly are troubles, with Christianity that non-Christians have. These are things that non-Christians would say, you know, because Christianity believes X or represents X, I simply cannot accept the Christian faith as true because I can't believe that may have to Christianity that are stumbling blocks to them uh, becoming Christians. But these aren't just problems for people who aren't Christians. These are problems for people who are Christians too. Let's not kid ourselves. The issues that we've been wrestling with, things like uh, whether or not science has basically gotten rid of the need for God or disproven God, uh, whether or not the Bible is even uh, trustworthy as some form of sacred scripture, uh, these questions are problems for Christians as much as they are problems for non-Christians. The difference is, is that they're an issue for Christians from inside the belief system as opposed to outside the belief system. Nevertheless, it's still a problem. And we're going to look at one more of those problems this morning, one that is uh, certainly uh, front of mind for a lot of people in today's context, and that is this, the question of what you could call exclusivity, okay? Christians historically have believed that their religion is the one true 
There are not elements of truth in other faith traditions. However, we are saying historically that if you want to really know God and you want to connect with God, you need to do it through the person of Jesus Christ. You need to express, express faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, this has been a problem for a lot of people for a long time, and certainly it was a problem for the people who first heard the gospel in the Greco-Roman world when it, when it went out uh, at its beginning, okay, because it was a pagan Roman culture where people were very uh, pluralistic in their religious beliefs, and it's a problem in our world today where people would say, how in the world could you actually believe that you have got a lock on the truth? I was talking to my neighbor, uh, I was trying to invite them to pub talks, and a uh, real nice guy, terrific guy, like, like him a lot, and I said to him, hey, come to this thing to, uh, on Friday night, it's going to be a lot of fun. He goes, what is it? And I explained it to him, I said, we're going to talk about whether or not Jesus is the only way. And he said, well, obviously he's not. <laughs> and I went, oh, really? <laughs> he said, of course not. He said, if I'm going to the convenience store, and you're going to the convenience store, and you go that way, and I go that way, if we both end up at the convenience store, that's all that really matters, right? And I went, Maybe. <laughs> um, but his view is representative of a lot of views, right? Gandhi, everybody knows who Gandhi was, Mahatma Gandhi, he said, look, the religions are different roads converging on the same point. What matters, what does it, sorry, what does it matter that we all take different roads to the goal? So that's why you have a picture of a mountain and a path, right, on the front of your bulletin, because the idea is, look, the peak the peak, we're all headed towards the peak of the mountain. And you may take the Hindu path, you may take the Buddhist path, you may take the atheistic path, you may take the uh, theosophic path, you may take the New Age path, you may take the Christian path, but you eventually all end up at the same place anyway. So how do we respond to that? Uh, in the last hundred years or so, there has been a trend in the Christian tradition to actually begin to agree with that position. And, and the interfaith movement has, has really emphasized a lot of the similarities between the Christian faith and other religions in order to bridge that divide between people of, of differing faiths. And it has its place, and it's not all bad, but, but historic Christianity has actually said, well, the similarities, as great as they are, uh, they don't overcome the differences. The differences are big, the differences are huge. The differences remain to the degree that historic Christianity has continued to argue that Jesus is the only way to connect in a saving way with the divine. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to investigate that and unpack that from the gospel according to John, where Jesus here in in John chapter 14, kind of lays out that perspective and that position. Now, again, if you're here this morning and you're maybe skeptical of Christianity and you're like, well, you're, you're about to base a story on the Bible um, and I don't buy the Bible, all I can say is, sorry, that was last week. We dealt with that, <laughs> we dealt with that objection last week. Uh, you can listen to that on the website if you are so inclined and you're that keen knock yourself out, uh, but otherwise, we can talk about that afterwards as well, if you would like, um, maybe at the park. Um, so this morning, we're going to say, we're gonna say that, that the Bible can, is a trustworthy record of, the Gospels are a trustworthy record of 
who Jesus is and what he said he came to do. So I'm not arguing that this is true. I'm just saying it's a trustworthy record of, of Jesus' belief that it was true. Do you get what I'm, the difference that I'm saying? Okay, here we go. We're going to look at three things, all right? We're going to first look at whether or not Jesus did claim he was the only way. Did he really believe that? Second of all, we're going to look at why in the world he would believe that. How could he dare make such an outrageous claim? And then thirdly, actually, I'm going to make the case for you that, that Christian exclusivity, I struggle with that word Friday night too, Christian exclusivity is actually a lot more inclusive than you might think and probably more inclusive than the relativism that we see around us. I told you, every week I was going to try to have like a really audacious claim, outrageous claim, so that you'd keep listening to have something to really chew on and argue with. Okay, so here we go. Number one, first of all, did Jesus really think that he was the only way to God? In verse 14, or sorry, verse 6 of John chapter 14, we get this very famous statement where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what I'd like you to notice here is that Jesus says something kind of weird. He says, he doesn't say, look, I point to the way. I have come here to show you the way to get to God. He doesn't say, I have come here to blaze a trail to the divine. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And this isn't the first time that Jesus has said something kind of strange like this. In other places in the New Testament, he does this as well. Just a few chapters earlier, you can read the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Before he raises Lazarus from the dead, and he gets met by a woman named Martha. And she's freaking out because her friend is dead, and she's so sad. And Jesus said, do you believe that he will rise again? And she says, yes, at the resurrection, at the last day, I believe that he will rise again. And he looks at her and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus' disciples are gathering food on the Sabbath, and according to the Jewish leaders, that's a no-no. You're not supposed to, according to the Old Testament law, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath at all. So the, these Jewish leaders, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, what's with you and your disciples? You guys are working on the Sabbath. That's against the rule. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the author of the Sabbath. I am the creator of the Sabbath. And then there's another place, just one more uh, for interest's sake. In ancient Near Eastern literature, if you wanted to gain wisdom, if you wanted to become a wise person, you were encouraged to put on a yoke. You were supposed to put on this burden of wisdom, enter this school of wisdom, and practice this wisdom, and it was a burden and a yoke. And at one point, Jesus says in Matthew, he says, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for I am the embodiment. I am the concrete expression. I am the personification of Sabbath rest, of resurrection life, of truth, of wisdom, etc. That's what he says in all these places in, in the New Testament or in the Gospels. Now, I want you to imagine something. Imagine that you are in a battle. You are at war. You're going to war. And your captain comes to you. And your captain says, look, we need to take that village. It's a very strategic village. And we need to take it. What I want you to do is I want you to fight for me. 
I want you to be willing to risk your life for me. I want you to be willing to sacrifice your body to the, to the bullets and slings and arrows of the, of, the, of the enemy for me. Do it for me! What would you say? Well, Captain Crazy Pants, you're a nice guy and all, and I really like you, but I ain't dying for you, pal. But what if your captain came to you and said, look, we need to take this village. It is strategically important. We have to win this battle. And I want you to fight. I want you to lay your life on the line. I want you to die for truth. I want you to be willing to die for freedom. I want you to realize that we are fighting for justice. What would you say then? You would say, these are grand ideals that perhaps my life is worth giving up for. Okay? Well, this is exactly what Jesus did. In the New Testament, he was calling people to die for him, time and time again. Good morning, Jonathan. He is calling people to die for him. He's calling people to lay down their lives for him. He's telling people, you must be willing to sacrifice yourself for me. But at the same time, he's saying, I want you to be willing to give up your life for truth and justice and love and freedom because that's what and who I am. No wonder Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus definitely believed that he was the way. He was convinced of it. If the Gospels are to be believed. And remember that was last week. Second point, well, how dare Jesus make this outrageous claim? I mean, is that not unfair and I know what you're thinking, because this is what I think. What about people who are sincere followers of other religious traditions? What if you are a sincere Muslim, if you're a sincere Buddhist, or you're a sincere Hindu? Hindu? What, if you, what if you are a sincere just follower of seeking truth? No specific religious system or anything, but you just really want truth. What about those people? What about these other leaders? Was Buddha, was Muhammad, are these guys wrong? How does Jesus, does Jesus think he's better than all these other people? And the answer, according to the Gospels, is yes. Yes, he does. He believes he's better. And it has to do with two things. He's better because of the nature of what he came to do. And he's better because of the nature of who he is. So let's unpack these. First of all, the nature of what he came to do. In verse 6 and 7, those famous verses, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father and, excuse me, have seen him. See, Jesus, when he defines salvation, what he came to do, he talks about knowing the Father. He came to en enable us to be able to know the Father. It's something he says in John 17 as well. He says it even more bluntly and openly. And John 17 is a fascinating passage in Scripture because what it is, is it's a, re it's a re recording, a record of an intimate conversation that Jesus, the Son of God, has with his heavenly Father. It's often described as the high priestly prayer. And what we get to do is, is we get to actually eavesdrop on what a conversation would look like inside the Trinity. And in that prayer, in verse 3, Jesus says something absolutely astounding. He says, this is eternal life. That they may know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God, Jesus, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is constantly talking about salvation as being this knowing God, having a relationship with Him. And in, 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 verse, in chapter 14, He actually says it's knowing the Father. What a nutty claim. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus says you will know God as a Father? This is what it means. Jesus is arguing that through Him... You can know God not as a boss or as a taskmaster or as a sort of amorphous, inscrutable energy, but you can know God as a father. Now, his context is particularly addressing the issue of knowing God as a boss or as a taskmaster because he's talking to, to these very specific expectations that we're supposed to follow, certain laws that we're supposed to follow, and if we do that, God will bless us. And that's knowing God as a boss. That's knowing God kind of as an employer. Think about it. In your relationship with your employer, if you're employed, uh, you earn a wage, right? You go to work, you do your duty, you earn a wage, and you deserve that. You get the reward for the work that you have put in. And Jesus' argument is, is that basically, that is how religious systems work. So, for example, in Buddhism, uh, if you follow the eightfold path and understand the four noble truths, then you achieve uh, enlightenment, which is ultimately annihilation, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. Or in Islam, if you practice the five pillars of Islam, which are you know, the, the Shada, and I don't always say that right, Shahada, which is, you know, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, if you say that, if you do the prayers, if you practice charity and fasting, and if possible, make the Hajj, make the, the, the religious trip to Mecca, if you do those things, then you, accomp then you are a good Muslim, and you will receive the reward that is paradise at the end. And even if, frankly, even if you don't believe any of that stuff, if you're not religious at all, but you, you practice some sort of disciplines, you, you believe that as you seek understanding, as you pursue enlightenment, as you do meditation, whatever, you will achieve it. In other words, if you fail, you don't get it, or the boss fires you, or however you want to describe it, and if you succeed... You, as Christ says, but through me, you don't have that kind of relationship with God. With me, you know God as a father. All right, I have teenage kids. They like to go out and have fun with their friends and stuff. And there's a curfew. You know, there's a certain time they, they're supposed to be home. And it's very early and very unfair, according to them. But anyhow, they have this curfew. And if they break curfew, right, if they break curfew, I don't fire them as my kid. They're still my kid, right? I still love them. I'm still devoted to them. I'm still committed to them. Frankly, don't tell them this, but there's pretty much nothing they could do to undermine my commitment to them. And if you're a parent, you know that's true. There's pretty much nothing your kid could ever do to make you stop loving them, to make you be stop being devoted to them, to make you stop being committed to them 
When your child's in trouble, you go to the greatest lengths to, to save them. You're walking along a river and they fall into the river and you can't swim. You don't think twice about it. You dive in after them anyway. It's almost scary. It's like, a, it's like a, a, an instinct, this desire to bless and protect and love your child, right? That's what Jesus says he comes to offer us. That kind of relationship with God, that we would know him in that kind of way, that, that he is so utterly committed to us, that he delights in us, that he loves us, despite all our screw-ups, despite all the failures, despite all the times where we didn't get it right, when we didn't pray enough, or we didn't give enough money at church, or we didn't, you know, help the old lady across the street, whatever we didn't do, he's still committed to us. That's Christianity, you see. Okay, so what? What does that have to do with all this stuff about different ways? Well, think about this, okay? Gandhi says, we're all trying to get to the same peak, but we're taking different paths, right? The point of every religion is essentially the same. Jesus says, no, it's not. We're not all looking for the same thing. We're not all going to the same place. And frankly, if you take the time to really think about what different religions actually teach. You have to come to understand that that's the case. I mean, Buddhism says that the goal ultimately is annihilation. That you are a, a, no longer a, you no longer really is actually an atheistic religion. It doesn't believe in a separate divine creature being order. Hinduism says that the goal is essentially to be lost in Brahma. Brahma is this one world spirit. It's kind of like, an ocean, uh, like a drop of water returning to the ocean. Brahma is the ocean. You are a drop of water. When you enter into the ocean, you become part of the ocean, and your individuality is, is lost. It disappears. Christian, or Islam, okay, I'll give you one more, Islam. The goal is to achieve paradise, which is a never-ending place of, of just indulging your pleasures, Christianity is the only one that says, look, the ultimate goal is fellowship with your creator. Intimacy with your creator. The one who made you, the one who offers you security and offers you hope and offers you meaning in life. He is, he is offering that to you. And through me, you can experience it. So that's the first one. The second one, the second reason why Jesus can make this audacious claim, is because Jesus is utterly unique in the founders of all the world religions. He is totally one of a kind. Whether you believe that he is who he says he is or not, please understand, this is what he says he is. Look at verses 8 and 9. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Verse 9, Jesus responds, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You can almost hear kind of the exasperation in Jesus' voice. You, you got to kind of picture yourself there. He's been with them forever, teaching them forever, and they're just like the dullest students on the planet. And he's about to go to the cross, and he's finally like, you know, I think I've used that one before, knucklehead, the V8 thing, you know, that commercial with the V8, should have had a V8, clunk. He's like clunking them. Here's what Philip's doing. Philip's saying, look, Jesus, we've been with you a long time. We have seen you do remarkable things. We have seen you take a little bit of food and turn it into a feast for thousands. We have seen you 
touch people who were white with leprosy and seen it just disappear. We have known people who were blind from birth or lame from birth or deaf from birth or mute from birth, and we have seen you touch them or speak to them, and they can see, they can hear, they can speak, they can walk. We have seen incredible things, and it's been something else, but here's the thing, Jesus. What we desperately want more than anything else is this one thing. Please let us see God. Jesus, you got to understand, it is so hard to believe in an invisible God. We've been trying to, but we desperately want the beatific vision. We want what Moses was denied. We want what Adam and Eve and all human beings have been denied since they were banished from the garden. Just let us see the Father. And Jesus looks at him and says, Philip, you have seen him because you've seen me. In verse 11, he says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, we don't have a perfect, I mean, we're talking Trinitarian stuff here, right? So it doesn't make complete sense to us. But we have an analogy. You look at my, I bet you, okay, I won't tell you who my kids are. Those of you who don't know me and don't know my family and are here as a guest, after the service, walk around, try to figure out which kid is mine. I bet you it won't take that long. Be like, you, and especially you, because I am in my child, and my child is in me. There is a resemblance. There is a representation. There is a, there is a connection, Right? And Jesus is saying, look, I am his son. I am the exact representation of the father. I am, you could put it this way, I am his spitting image. I have not come into this world to point you to God. You don't need me to just point you to the way. I have come to be him, to be the way among you. Through my death, through my sacrifice on the cross, through paying the penalty for sin which has separated you from your creator, I make the way for you to know him again. I am not showing you how to strive. I am not showing you the path of righteousness that you have to take to climb up the peak. I climbed it for you. I'm not showing you the life you need to live because I lived it on your behalf. Now, if this stuff is true, if it's true, and I'm, I'm, I know it's hard to believe. I know that you're sitting here going, some of you anyway, maybe not making sound effects, but you're thinking, this is hard to believe. Yeah, it is hard to believe that a man who lived 2,000 years ago was the unique embodiment manifestation of the divine. But if it is true, Jesus has to be better than all the other religions. Does that not make sense? He's the only one who claimed to be that. Did you know that people tried to worship Buddha? His life was so exemplary. People said, he must be a god. People tried to worship him, and Buddha said, don't you dare worship me. I am just a man like you. I have... I have found the path and I am here to point you in the right direction, but I am not divine at all. When people came to Jesus and said, I want to worship you, you're so incredible. You know what Jesus said? That's right. 
worship me. Every other founder said, I am a prophet here to help you find God. Jesus alone said, I am God who's come here to find you. So Jesus is either better or he is horribly, horribly, massively worse. He's either better than the founders of the other religions or he is way, way, way worse. And I know people say, well, that is incredibly narrow-minded, but is it really narrow-minded? <clears throat> Isn't it just a fact? You know how when you get busy at work, you got a lot to do and you think to yourself, man, if I didn't need sleep what I could accomplish. I had a friend in seminary, I kid you not, this guy needed four hours of sleep a night. Oh, that's three, there we go, four. Four hours of sleep a night, four hours. This guy only needed four hours of sleep a night. He was an absolute dynamo. Now granted, I think he pretty much slept all day Saturdays, but this guy had, it was like having a superpower. And I know that if I say, well, I'm just so busy, I wish I could sleep, I can't go without sleep. My body just can't handle it. Now, is that narrow? No, it's just a fact, right? Without getting enough sleep, your body will wither and die. That's just how it is. And Jesus, if he is the son of God, then without him, your soul will ultimately wither and die. That's not narrow. It's just how it is. It's either true or it's false. Go back to that illustration again about going up the peak because that's, that's, the, that's the hot one, right? All paths lead to the same place. How do you know that? How would you be able to know that all paths reach the same peak? Wouldn't, don't you need to be up there looking down to see that? Or in fact, actually, not even just on the peak. Don't you need to be even higher than the peak so you can see the peak and all the paths at the mountain to be able to know that every path ultimately is going to get you to the same place? Isn't that... God's perspective? Unless you're God, it's kind of arrogant to say, I know that all paths lead to the same destination. It kind of, because you're claiming to know everything. And you might be looking at me and say, well, that's exactly what you're doing. You're claiming to know everything. No. God is claiming to know everything. Jesus. If he's God, he knows. It's interesting how very often people say, I like Jesus. <laughs> I like his teaching. I like his example. He was a good man and all that kind of stuff. And, and you can learn a tremendous amount from him. But all that, I'm a, I am God in the flesh stuff, that I just cannot buy. And I think that's inconsistent. I've used this example before. Though I, I use a lot of parenting examples because that's kind of front of mind for me right now in my life. Give me another 10 years when they're all gone. And then, if that happens. And then... I'll have different illustrations for you. But um, so imagine you need, an, you need a, a babysitter. And so you have all these candidates come and you interview them to be babysitter for your children. And you get this one candidate and they are just off the charts awesome. They nail every question. They've, they know the fire escape plan. They have memorized all the important phone numbers for poison control and the police department and all this stuff. And they have first aid, they are licensed uh, lifeguards, like they are perfect. 
in every way, and you think, I am totally going to sign this person up. And at the end of the interview, they, you say, well, are there any other things that you would like to say, anything else that I need to know? And they say, just one more thing you need to know, and it's this. I am an alien from a far-off galaxy, and I have come to bring truth to this planet. Would you hire them anyway? Last thing. Look, it sounds exclusive, right? This whole idea that Jesus would be the only way, but it's actually pretty radically inclusive, okay? I would say it's more inclusive than the many paths approach, and here's why. How do you get up the mountain? If you're taking the many paths up the mountain, how do you get there? Basically, you climb, right? That's what you do. You may climb by practicing certain techniques. You may climb by applying certain principles. You may climb by performing certain duties. It, it, essentially, it's all about execution. You execute what needs to be executed, and you make it there. Even if you have no religion at all, you just say, well, I, I try to be a good person, or I try to seek wisdom, and I try to discover hidden truth. And this is why, understandably, people will say, I think it's unfair that a sincere Muslim or a sincere Buddhist or, or, or a sincere Hindu, that they're not in? Or how about people who have never had the chance to hear about Jesus Christ? I think it's unfair that they wouldn't be in. And that's understandable, completely understandable. But, and we can talk about that in the Q&A if you want. But listen, the underlying belief behind all these approaches and objections is this. Good people are in. Bad people are out. So good people are saved. Bad people, whatever that means, are condemned. And that's actually kind of problematic because <clears throat> you need to ask yourself, what is good? Who's considered good? And you naturally are thinking, me. <laughs> I'm good because I want to be in. I want to be included in. Okay, well, let's define what that means. Well, I'm, a, I'm not perfect to err is human, right? That's what... Alexander Pope said, but I pay my taxes, I try to raise my kids right, I basically follow the law, yeah, I speed once in a while, but I'm not like, I'm not a murderer, and I try to treat other people right, but then you got to ask yourself, well, what about the murderers? What about the thieves? What about the drug dealers? What about the sex abusers, etc.? Are they in or are they out? And usually we would say something like, well, they're probably out. But listen, what about those people who are born into a nasty home? They're born into an abusive home where they have not been raised right. They haven't been raised to, to believe in right and wrong. They were offered their first drink when they were eight years old by their dad. And so they've been drinking their lives away for the last 20 years and living nasty, horrible lives. And they're nasty, horrible people. Are they out? Just sucks to be born into your lousy home? Or what about the good, sincere, practicing member of ISIS who blows up an arena? Look, we, we cannot escape exclusivity. We are all exclusive. 
even our belief that maybe it's just pursuing enlightenment is exclusive because then the smart are in and the rest are out. We're, these are all ways of trying to climb the mountain. We're all just trying to climb the mountain. But here comes the gospel that is so radically different from anything you've ever heard. And Jesus comes along and he says, in the gospel, in me, you don't climb anymore. I came down to you. I died in your place. And in the gospel, it's not the smart or the strong or the good who are in and the stupid or the, the weak or the bad who are out. It's the humble who are in and the proud who are out. It's the weak who are in and the strong who are out. And anybody can be weak. Not everybody can be strong. Anybody can be humble. Not everybody well, okay, everybody can be proud too. <laughs> but do you see, it's a, a far more inclusive exclusivity than you may think. And it's offered in this person, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said in the very beginning, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Consider him. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> tough teaching for our ears. Uh, we we believe that we believe that it's just unfair. <laughs> um, but we also admit that we don't know everything because we aren't God. So we ask, Father, that you will help us, help us to receive this teaching, help us to to believe this teaching, help us to humbly. Share this teaching with the world in which we live, not in an arrogant way, uh, not in a extreme way, but in a winsome way, in, a, in an understanding way, in a humble way. In Jesus we pray, amen.